to the with principles from Israel. We as a people need a reroute. It's now. Many have gotten off track. They've forgotten their way. They've become distracted by the glittery things around us. And we've forgotten to get centered on God. As we go through these prophets, we find the prophets calling us back to that place of focus on the things of God. And that's certainly what Amos does as we look at his prophecy. A word that we find spoken again and again through the nine chapters of Amos is this. Hear this word the Lord has spoken to you. We need to understand that the prophets weren't people who were just constantly complaining about the spiritual condition of things. These were people who were moved by God to share an important message with a group of people who were really off track. But lest we view this as simply a history lesson and we look at the audience that these prophets write to and say, yeah, those people were messed up. We need to understand that there are applications and principles in these prophets that apply to us. They're in God's living word, which is always relevant, from which we can always find application. So as we go through Amos, I invite you, Look at the message that Amos gives to his audience, but also understand that there's a message here for us. I'll tell you, I was convicted as I poured over the prophecy of Amos, and I saw my own shortcomings, my own need to respond to the call of God. So I invite you, rather than looking at our nation and saying, wow, I wish the rest of our nation could hear this, rather than looking to your neighbor and saying, I have a neighbor who really needs to hear this, rather than looking across the church and saying, I hope they're getting this, husbands and wives, keep your elbows to yourselves. (laughs) Stop for a moment and look And ask yourself, is there something here that God is directing toward me? In fact, to begin our study in Amos, I want us to take a moment in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We we are so thankful for the call to holiness, for the importance of looking at our lives and redirecting them toward the things of you when we get off track. God, my prayer is that you would speak to each one of us. In fact, our prayer together is this. Lord God, speak to me. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Amos was a prophet that is rather unusual. So we've gone through our study. We've seen that Israel as a nation was divided into ten northern tribes to southern. Normally what we find is a prophet usually speaks to the kingdom that he's from. But that's not the case with Amos. 
Amos lived in the southern kingdom. He had many flocks. He had a fig business. Maybe he even originated fig newtons. We don't know. But he was a follower of God. And when God spoke to Amos, and he said to Amos, I have a message for you to share. I wonder how he first responded when God said to the northern kingdom, well, wait a minute, I'm not part of that faction. I didn't go with them. No, they're the people that I want you to speak to. But they won't listen to me. I mean, my goodness, they'll look at where I'm from and they'll immediately write me off. No, they're the ones that I want you to speak to. God often operates outside the box, doesn't he? Not in the way that we might expect him to, but always in the way that is best. Amos carried the message of God, and he carried it from south to north. What we find Amos address in the northern kingdom was the spiritual climate that had become a part of that northern kingdom. See, the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, had a long reign. And during his reign, there was a lot of prosperity, peace. A lot of the things that people were looking for were being provided But don't we find that when life goes easy, it's awfully easy to take our eyes off of God. In the midst of a crisis, we look to God. But when things are starting to work in our favor, it's awfully easy to become distracted. And that's what the people of the northern kingdom had done. Even the establishment of their worship in the northern kingdom was something that was a distraction. God had the temple in Jerusalem. King Jeroboam, who was reigning again during this time, knew that if the northern kingdom went down to Jerusalem to worship, that they might move back in to the southern kingdom and things might get patched up and he would lose power. So what did he do in Bethel? He established his own place of worship. And he decided that in the establishment of that worship, not only would he change the place of worship, but he would build his own cast of priests and formulate his own ideas about how to worship. And as a result, his kingdom really lost perspective. So here's Amos. Amos comes on the scene, and Amos is saying to the people, I have a message that you need to hear. I have a warning for you. You know, funny thing about warnings. I read an article that talked about how people respond to fire alarms. Fire alarm's a warning, right? You know what the psychologist who did a study on this found? That often when people hear an alarm go off, they don't respond. Often what they do is wait, and they'll go out and they'll look for other cues. Do I see any smoke? 
Do I feel any heat? Are there other people running out of the building? Until they hear some of the other cues, they aren't going to actually respond. But it gets even more interesting than that. When there's a fire, people have a tendency to want to go back out the way that they came in. Even if there's an exit sign. Most of you this morning, even in this section, if there were an alarm that went off here at Oakland Bible Church, you'd head toward the back doors. But there's an exit sign right there. And maybe 15 feet away is safety. We get confused about these things because we're creatures of habit. And habits are hard to break. And this is what the author of this study, Gross, concludes. Dr. Gross says, after 25 years as a psychoanalyst, I can't say that it surprises me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us, even, or perhaps even especially, in an emergency. We want to know what the new story we're stepping into will be before we exit the old one. And isn't that the way people respond to warnings that we find in the Word of God? I'm more comfortable staying where I am, doing what I'm doing, and listening to God's redirection of my life. We get nervous. We start to wonder, where is this going to lead? What's going to happen? I don't want to redirect because I'm comfortable where I am, even if it's for my good. I feel safe. I feel content. So Amos begins to address a people with that same dynamic going on in their life. And you know what he begins with? He begins speaking of God's indignation towards sin. And when we look at the first chapter of Amos and on into half of the second chapter, we see God listing perennial enemies of Israel that surrounded them, that God was going to judge because of their terrible activity. We see the Moabites, we see the Amorites. As a matter of fact, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, we might even see mosquito bites. God's addressing them all. And he's calling these people to task for their sin. Now, I'd encourage you, go back and read some of these verses. We're not going to take time to read through them all this morning, but just look at a general observation. Put yourself in the mind of the Israelites as Amos is talking about all of the enemies that surround you and how God is going to bring judgment on them because they're wicked. You know what I would be doing? Yeah. Get them. I am so glad that they're finally going to get what they deserve. I'm cheering you on, God. Amos, you're a great prophet because you're talking about judgment of all of these people that are around us. Isn't that an easy trap to fall into? 
I don't like somebody. Something bad happens to them. You know they deserve that. They've been so awful, it's about time justice has been served. It's easy for us to look at people that we deem evil, wicked, and when we see justice served, we want it done quickly, thoroughly. They need to pay for what they've done. But then we look at ourselves and we want to be shown mercy and pity when we do wrong. As a matter of fact, the wrong that I do isn't really sin. The wrong that I do is actually a misstep. I lost a little bit of perspective. It was a lapse in judgment. Now, the enemies, they deserve the full force of God's wrath. But for me, God needs to cut me some slack. I'm only human. I think there was some of that going on as Amos was addressing the terrible sin that took place in the surrounding communities. Even Judah is mentioned in verse 4 of Amos chapter 2. His own people, the own region that Amos is from, and Amos is addressing their sin as well. But then there's a shift. When we move into the rest of the second chapter, starting at verse 6, we find an inventory of Israel's sins toward God. And I want us to look at this a little more carefully. And I want us to understand that God is sharing with Israel now the sin that they have committed. Yes, you fully acknowledge the sin of the nations around you, but you have sin of your own. And that's what I'm calling you to task for. So look at some of the sin that he addresses. First of all, verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor and upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. What was the first sin he addresses? Abuse of the needy. When we become selfish and materialistic, it's easy for us to look the other way when there are needy people. In fact... Often what we find is during times of prosperity when there would be ample opportunity to share that prosperity with the needy, we hoard and we take further advantage of the needy because they're powerless to do anything to stop us. Now that's wicked. That's what was going on in the northern kingdom. Those who were wealthy, those who were powerful, those who had the ear of the leadership abused and took advantage of the needy. Then look at the second half of that seventh verse. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Morality was out the window. Now, we're not sure whether Amos was addressing temple prostitutes that were a part of the worship 
of that time, or whether there was just such rampant immorality that father and son were sharing the women that they oppressed around them. We don't know. But what we do know is it was an abomination to God. Their moral compass was broken. Look at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now, what we find in this 8th verse might just kind of shoot right over our heads. In the Old Testament law, it was forbidden to take a person's garment as pledge to fulfill repayment of the loan. And so what Amos is talking about here is practices that enslaved the poor and the needy by loaning to them and taking everything that they had to kind of bolster your position. Isn't it amazing how millennia later we still see the same stuff? We still see people taking captive those who are in a position financially to where they can't fend for themselves, but we loan them money and then we take control over them. God was calling Israel to task for that. Look at verse 12. We're going to skip down a little bit. And in verse 12, we find that they were even corrupting those who were dedicating themselves to the things of God. In verse 12, it says this, You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. There was a spiritual component in Israel where there were those that dedicated themselves to the things of God. We've heard of the Nazarite vow. That was something that Samson had taken, where they abstained from alcohol, and there were many, many other requirements that these Nazarites would embrace. And what Amos is calling them to task for is, you're taking people who have dedicated themselves spiritually to the things of God, and you're corrupting them. So he's calling them to task, but perhaps the most damning part of this is you've commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Amos knew this firsthand because he was one who was commanded not to prophesy. You know, it's easier to tell someone who's speaking the truth of God, be quiet, than it is to stop and say, I will Apply this to my life, and I'll follow the things of God. Don't rock the boat. Don't step on toes. Be quiet, prophets. We want to stay in our own course, in our own lane. We're content. Leave us alone. So that was the message that Amos was receiving. Isn't sin so deceptive? We think that we have something when we have sin. We look at it and we say, now this is going to lead to a path to where I'm really going to get a lot more out of life because I commit this sin. Sin reminds me of the story of Alice Pike. Now, Alice Pike was a woman who went to Walmart 
and wanted to pay her $1,675 bill with a million-dollar bill, and she wanted the change that would come from it. In her mind, she built a scenario where maybe a couple of armored trucks would follow her home after she bought her $1,600 worth of stuff from Walmart. She had a fake, an obvious fake, but her plan was to deceive and ultimately steal. And you know, that's what sin often does. It promises us that if I can give a fake, I can get great things as a result. Needless to say, Alice and her plan did not work out the way that she had hoped. Imprisoned for passing a counterfeit. Sin is full of those counterfeits. And so what we find Amos doing here is calling the people of Israel to just stop and do inventory and look and understand that what they were doing was outside the will of God. And that brings us to the next part of God's indignation with sin. God, because he is holy, can't look at sin and just look the other way. God is long-suffering. God is gracious. God is merciful. But eventually, we have to experience the consequences for our sin. And that's his message to the children of Israel. Flip over to the third chapter. And in the third chapter, we find in verse 2 that God had a special relationship with his people. And he says this, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Now, God wasn't picking on Israel because he didn't like them. God was looking at Israel and saying, you have fallen into profound and deep sin, and because you are my own, I must punish you. Look, every nation that Israel replaced was replaced because of the wickedness of the very things that the children of Israel were doing. Their detestable idols Israel had embraced. Their abuse of other human beings Israel had embraced. If God were to allow that sin to persist and never address it, he would have to bring each one of the nations that he had driven out and punished and say, I apologize. They were his own. And so God had to punish them. Look at the seventh verse. When we come to verse 7, it says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. You know what, what we find Amos saying to these people? These judgments that I'm going to share with you, they're not my own material. It's material from God. Now, you can get mad at me for sharing these things, 
but it's God who has given me this message. Have you ever been in that situation where you were the messenger and you wanted to hold up that sign that says, don't shoot the messenger? I'll tell you, it's tough confronting people with sin, isn't it? That's what Amos was doing. But the people were responding with anger and, yes, probably even violence. God had to deal with sin. And it wasn't Amos who was calling down the wrath of God. It was Amos saying to a people who had lost perspective, the wrath of God is coming as a consequence for your sin. And you know what we find? In chapters 4 through 9, Amos delineates those sins that were going to be punished, and he shares the punishment that would be coming. And perhaps the most telling part of his prophecy against them is found in the seventh chapter. So turn to Amos chapter 7 and look at the seventh verse. This is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked, what do you see? A plumb line, I replied. And then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel and I will spare them no longer. Now, for those of you who don't know what a plumb line is, no, it's not a piece of string with a plumb put on it. This is plumb line, P-L-U-M-B. And a plumb line is basically a weighted object on the end of some twine. And the way it works, if you have built a wall and you hold that plumb line next to the wall, gravity will pull that weight down. And you can see how true the wall is by holding that line. The idea is the line will be pulled straight. So if you've built a straight wall, it's going to be parallel all the way down. If you build a wall the way I do, it's going to look like a washboard, you know, in and out, off, leaning, back. It's going to look really off kilter. So what God is saying through Amos to the people of Israel is this. I've looked at you. and You're out of plumb. You don't match up to what I have called you to be, you're living out of plumb. You know, I wonder, as I looked at my own life and as I encourage you to look at yours, how's your plumb? Are you in line with the things of God? Do you match up? If someone were to look at the plumb line next to your life, would they say, wow, that's great. They're really matching up. They're really lining up. This is exciting. Or would they look and go, nah. <laughs> Man, that is messed up. And there are areas of my life where I would look and I would say, yeah, pretty true to plumb. There are other areas where I would look at my life and I would say, oh, wow, that's off. But here's the thing with the plumb line. It's not just so we can look and say, oh, does that match up? It's so we can see the areas that need repair, that need to be brought into line, so to speak. 
so that we can experience that closeness and that development of a relationship with God. So here is Israel. They are sinning. They're going to face consequences because of that sin. The question is, would they turn and redirect, or would they continue down the path that they were following? And what we're going to find is, because of their impudence, impudence, they were not going to listen to God. Now, impudence, we know what that means. When a person is impudent, that means you can't tell me anything. As a matter of fact, you can't see it too well, but when I went online and I, I, I typed in uh, in the search em- engine for images, you know, talk to the hand, um, that, that's what I came up with. And, and really, that's the way a lot of people approach God. When God starts to speak to them through his word or through a brother or sister in Christ or through the prophets, it's, wait a minute, I kind of like where my life is. I'd really like to continue down the path that I'm following. And we do that sometimes because we have the erroneous idea that religious rituals will offset evil behavior. Turn back to or excuse me, Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. And look at verses 21 through 23. Here's what was going on in Israel. They were sinning wholesale, doing whatever they wanted to do, and then to offset what they were doing, they would go and worship. And here's the thinking. If I go and worship, that's going to cancel out my disobedience. It's kind of like going into a bakery and getting a whole cake and eating it and saying, if I drink a Diet Coke, it will cancel out all of those calories, right? That's the same logic. Look at how God viewed their worship because of what they were doing. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away, now listen to this, with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, to me, this caught my attention. Wait a minute, God, you mean that if I go to church and I sing worship and I sit under the word and I put in my hour plus, depending on how long-winded the pastor is, that that doesn't offset my wickedness and the sin that I do? And the message from Amos, which is from God, is no. Worship should be the overflow of my praise and obedience to God. Not something that cancels out my deplorable behavior. And so that's his message 
to Israel, and I think that's a message to all of us. We shouldn't compartmentalize our lives. We shouldn't look and say, these are the sacred things that I do. These are the secular things that I do. And the sacred will not inform at all the secular. I do what I want. They're being called to change that perspective. Number two, impudence is shown by ignoring God due to complacency. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Complacency. You know, someone was asked one time, what's the greater problem in the church? Ignorance or apathy? And the churchgoer's response, I don't know and I don't care. It's easy to come to the place to where we just don't care. We're apathetic because we're complacent. I am satisfied with the status quo. I've reached the place that I want to reach spiritually, so I'm on cruise control. Understand this. We should never be on cruise control. We should never be complacent. We should ever seek to grow in our walk with God. Not because it earns more of his favor, but because that's what we as the child of God should want to do. As a parent, how would you feel if your child came up to you and said, you know, I think I know you about as well as I want to. So we're not going to really spend any more time together. I'm satisfied with where we are. Let's leave it there. Husbands and wives, how would you feel? Your spouse comes up to you and says, you know what, I think I love you about as much as I'm going to. Let's leave it there. God wants relationship with us. He doesn't want us to become complacent. And that's what had settled in to Israel. So they were happy with the way things were going, but God was not. Then look over in the seventh chapter. In the seventh chapter, verses 12 through 13, We find that insisting that we keep the status quo, even if it's sinful, is definitely problematic. Now here, we find Amaziah. Now we'll see Amaziah's name many times in Scripture. It's not always the same person. The Amaziah who is mentioned here was the false high priest put into place in Jeroboam's religious system. So he had a vested interest in seeing that the status quo was maintained. So you know what he did? Rather than listening to the words of Amos and saying, wow, we are off track. This is what he did. Verse 12, Amos chapter 7. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. You know what he's saying? Back off and be quiet. We don't want you anymore. Leave. Now when somebody comes to us and shares the word of God, that can be a response that we have. We can say, stop 
telling me God's truth. Just go away. I don't want to hear it. I want to stay where I am. And in churches across America, that takes place. There are many who don't want to be confronted with the change that they need to make. And my encouragement to me and to you is don't be an Amaziah. Don't tune it out. Don't look at the truth of God and say, I'm satisfied, I want status quo. Redirect. Respond. Change the things that God calls you to change. Last thought. We're invited to seek God. Turn back to the fifth chapter. In verses 4 and 5, we see that it's important to seek God and not the rituals and rules that we come across. Look at what Amos writes. Verse 4, Amos 5. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not go to Bethel. Now, Bethel was the place where the new temple had been built. The religious system of Jeroboam. And so what God is saying is, don't substitute me with something else. Then he goes on to say this, do not go to Gilgal. Now, for us, okay, won't go to Gilgal. What does that mean? Gilgal was a memorial set up in the promised land as a reminder that God had given Israel a deliverance from Egypt and had brought them into the promised land. And you know, there can be those marks in our life that we look back on and we say, wow, what an exciting experience, but we can't live on those for the rest of our lives. If you've had a victory in your life, thank God for it, but don't live in it. Move on. Continue. And then there's one other place that's mentioned, and we look in Scripture And what we find is this, do not journey to Beersheba. Now, when we look in this text, we find Beersheba mentioned, and I just lost my place in the outline to say, oh yeah, (laughs) Uh, it was a shrine to the patriarchs of Israel. Senior moment. You know, when you get the gray hair, you can blame stuff like that on it, right? But what he's saying is this. Look, don't don't look to all of the special places that you have around you. Look to your heart. Follow God. Not because you're a part of something else, but follow God because he is God. Don't hang all that you have on man-made rules, on the idea that I'm blessed because I call myself a Christian, I'm blessed because I'm a part of a church. Look at your activity. Look at your behavior. Look at who you are. And respond accordingly. Secondly, we're invited to seek the Lord in the sixth verse of Amos 5. And he reminds us that there are consequences that we'll incur if we do not. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour. Bethel will have no one to quench it. 
isn't it easy to come to the place to where I look and I say, I can do all of these things that I know are wrong in my heart and never suffer a consequence. That is the biggest lie of sin. You can get by with it. It'll never cost you. No one will ever find out. Just like the woman that went into Walmart that we look at and say, that's ridiculous. How could anybody believe that? She could get change for a million-dollar bill. We're trying to change million-dollar bills all the time with God and the things of God. And there are consequences, a lot of times the natural consequences of the sin that we commit. Listen, God doesn't stand in heaven and say, I'm going to take away the thing that people like to do most and tell them they can't do it. He doesn't do that because he takes joy in withholding things from us. God tells us that we are not to do something for our protection because as creator and lover of our soul, he doesn't want to see the harm that we can't see coming. God protects us. And then finally, the last part. We need to seek an inner relationship that causes us to seek what God seeks. Look at verse 14 of Amos chapter 5. Seek good, not evil. Folks, God is good. And if I am a follower of God, I will seek that which is good as well. And society doesn't determine what is good. My own deceitful, sinful heart doesn't determine what is good. God determines what is good. And so I need to seek the things of God. Look at the 14th verse carefully. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you. And then look at that phrase right after it. Just as you say he is. When Amos was saying to the people of Israel, do right, do good, and God will be with you, you know what they were saying? He already is. I'm okay. Nothing to see here. total loss of perspective. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 reminds us to hate evil, to love good, to maintain justice in the courts, and in so doing, perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy and spare us the consequences for the evil that we've done. You know what the key to experience that course redirect is? Turning from sin to God. We see that in each prophet. The message of each prophet is this. You can get on the right path. If you stop turning away from God to all of these other things and just turn back to him. It's a message of hope. It's a promise that no matter how Off track we are. We can get back on track. And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful for that. There's an important message here from Amos to us. Do you hear the word of the Lord? Do you seek him? Or have we become so distracted by the things of this world around us that we've taken our eyes off of what really counts. 
I love the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I love this part of the hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's the message that God gives us. Redirect. Turn from the distractions to God. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the call that it is to us all that we are to be seekers and followers of God. Let us not become complacent. Let us not substitute religious ritual for the things that truly matter, and that is a love for you and a desire to grow in our walk with you. And that is my prayer today, Lord. May we live that out, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.